This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me, wow, for a pretty big ripper of an episode, a, a mini arc is going to happen over the next three minutes, and I have some terrific guests to talk to you about it. This is the 146th episode of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, Heat, and I'm, as always, your host, Blake Howard. And uh, joining me today is a guest who we actually, the time that we're recording this, we spoke six months ago in person for an episode of One Heat Minute. This incredible uh, film, uh, a critical mind, a person who's got a PhD in sound and classical Hollywood, which, you know, sound in this movie is so quintessential, um, also works for Melbourne Cinematheque and is one leg the most essential leg of the tripod of the um, Cultural Capital podcast, um, a really great Australian film podcast out of Melbourne. My lovely guest is Eloise Ross. Welcome back to One Heat Minute. Thanks for having me, Blake. It's a real um, pleasure to be here again for this really exciting minute. I'm very pumped for it. Yeah, look, it's, you know, we are... We we are on the downhill slope in the, in the heat parlance. Any opportunity I get to use a heat quote, you know, we're on the downhill slope of this marriage. Um, the, my marriage to this movie, uh, um, and uh, and I'm. It's so weird because so the, every single minute is so jam packed and loaded with all these like memorable sequences and seconds, and the momentum is building so much that there's just time is running out for everyone, and time's running out for this show, and it's um it's it's pretty crazy. We're we're literally like less than kind of twenty minutes. Yes, we're now less than 20 minutes of actual movie runtime, not credits, um, to go in the show. Yeah, and you can kind of tell, like, the last minute I did was minute um, 77. And I remember thinking, like, not much happens. I mean, obviously, it's, like, kind of the turning point of the movie. But in in a sense of the setup, not much happens. They're just they're chatting in the car park and they decide to do the big the big robbery, the big bank robbery. So it's a huge moment, but it's all just in this, you know, just lots of angles of this one conversation basically. But in this, like it's it's totally amped up. There's so much happening. Yes. There's... The pace is, the intensity is still there, but the pace is a lot faster and that kind of, you know, you can tell that it's where, um, however many, what, 70 minutes down the track from when I was last <laughs> Yeah, pretty much, uh, pretty much 70 minutes, 70 and a bit minutes um, down the track. Uh, that's exactly where we are. And things are more frantic. The stakes are higher. Everything, everything is hitting the fan for Macaulay and his crew and everything is hitting the fan for Vincent and his life. And we're in the emergency room here. We've got Justine in the fallout. And so if you're watching right now and you're looking at your original theatrical release DVD of Heat, two hours and 25 minutes exactly on the dial, we're going to go ahead and watch the 146th minute, um, dive into one of the great arcs, mini arcs of this movie, one of Neil's most infamous choices, but particularly in this little great moment, we get to see this relationship uh, at the height of its uh, a height of its tension. So guys, take a listen. I'm excited to talk about it, and I'm actually... Uh, 
being this close to the end, it's sort of starting to freak me out. So here we go. Let's watch this minute and now we'll come back and talk about it. Now, okay? Her vital signs are stable. The surgeon will be out to speak to you in a few moments and let you know what's going on. She's okay. She's doing good. She's going to be okay. She's going to be okay. She's going to be okay. It's all right. My baby, why did you do this to herself? Look what she did. Look what she did to herself. It's me. Plane's in the air now. We run on time. On the driver's end, I still can't find nobody, so that's in the trust. One other thing. You asked, so I gotta tell you. You asked, so I gotta tell you. Movies, people use a lingo that you're just not a part of, and like <laughs> gangster <laughs> criminal lingo is one of those things that's just so inscrutable to the everyday man. I feel like every kind of moment of this movie contains that and like it's in the trust. It's just, I don't know what that means. (laughs) What if you were Robert De Niro and you didn't understand the shorthand and you fucked up because of it? Like I always think that when I watch these noirs from the 40s and they're throwing these like casual terms around, I'm just like, what if you misinterpreted something? Anyway, that's just a little... um, No, and and that's why I love and I think... I, don't, I haven't talked about it to you yet, but this is a great way to digress to this topic just for a quick second. Have you seen Ryan Johnson's movie Brick? Yes. And that is a terrific high school set sort of, you know, uh, love letter to the Maltese Falcon. And in that movie, they use a whole bunch of like lingo. They call the cops bulls and they use all this weird lingo. And the first time you watch it, you're like, I'm not quite, I think that's what they mean. But you, you know, you'd have to be a real aficionado of that time. And I'm looking at you as someone who studied it to be like watching it going, I I would have had to have watched immediately watched like nineteen thirties nineteen forties gangster movies and and understood the context and done a bit of research to go and effortlessly watch Ryan Johnson's Brick and know what they're saying in every single scene. So I think it's there's just something about it that you know I think that's what turns a movie from like it's why those movies those older movies drip cool because it's like people know something that you don't know. And you yeah. like you don't want to seem uncool by pretending you don't know as the audience member, but like what's cool about these guys is they clearly know. There's a lingo, they say some stuff, it's all working. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that's what's so great about the movies, right? Because they tell us visually what's happening even if we don't <laughs> understand everything. <laughs> yes. Um, it's really good. This is like, t- you know, completely two sides of a coin of a minute. You know, um, the, 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 the news that... Um, the news that Lauren survives and she's doing well. And Justine is wholly in this moment. Diane Venora is wholly in this moment. Why did she do this to herself? And there's kind of, I don't know about you, Elo, but when I watch this, there's t- two huge things that happen for me. And the first is when, when Diane Venora says, why did she do this to herself? I think she looks even more pained because she kind of knows. 
when she's <laughs> saying why. And similarly in Vincent, and so I'm sort of playing the minute for Ella and I as we're sort of talking to you guys. Similarly with Vincent when he says, it's okay, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. And I just adore these two two things that are being said that you can absolutely take at face value. How could she possibly know why Lauren, a young girl who has her same genetics, is suffering from like crippling anxiety and potentially depression, um, which she medicates herself for? Um, and why would you do this? Why would you feel like there was no one listening to her in her life? And then Vincent saying, I'm not going anywhere, when clearly the beauty of Pacino's performance is that his eyes are darting all over the place like I, know, I am going somewhere. It's so heartbreaking. I mean, he all but looks at his watch when he's hugging. <laughs> I know. It's just so devastating because he loves Diane and he loves Lauren and he doesn't want to leave. But I was listening to – I just wanted to bring up because I was listening to a recent episode that you did with Rochelle, who is a friend of ours, I guess, um, which is kind of why I picked hers to of listen course. to. It was it had like just come out just before because we're recording a few weeks ahead of I think when this will go um, get released. But yes. she said something like the like the kind of ultimate disappointment of these men in their love lives is that the women are never enough, mm-hmm. and even though they're perfect for them, they're just not as important as their as like massaging their own egos, masculine egos is. And you can totally see that, I mean, in both kind of facets of this minute that we're chatting about. But in this, absolutely, like it's it's there. He just loves her so much, but you can't like he can't kind of submit. He's already decided, I mean, the the morning of when this happened, he'd already decided that they were over as a couple kind of thing. Yes. Um, And so it's just, it's more devastating for that reason. Like, he's there because she needs him to stay, but he's he's not, you know, he's not in it. No, and he's, and you can tell that, you know, this, this time, this expression of love is like, the same, he 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 does it in the with the same level of detachment as he does. I think it's in the sixty first minute of this movie. You know what I love so much? Sorry, just about this conversation is that we're talking about individual minutes, and people who are listening might actually know what we're talking about. So it just sort of gave me like a little heart flutter when I was talking about it. But the minute I know, talk about the prostitute's mother, the prostitute's mother, where he turns it on, it's a it's between minutes sixty and sixty. It's the same hug and it's the same grasp for Diane as it was for that mother. It's just like, I'm here, I'm here to stop you from completely dissolving. Yes. It's so awful because he's being professional. He's not being a partner. Yes. And in that, and in that moment, I think that that's where you go for both these people. The, what, what makes it this you know, soaring tragedy towards the end of this movie and like especially in the fallout of all the different characters there's just so many the tragedy just keeps permeating through every one of these storylines and what's so tragic is you know the, the flip side of the coin is her like she knows that there's something wrong with lauren like she knows like natalie portman's character she knows there's something wrong and her going why would you do this to herself it's like you know you're you know that you're 
you know, stoned and on Xanax. Like, you know, there's a problem. You know that she's a child of divorce. You know, she's having issues with, you know, a father figure. You know, she's, you know, this is a cry for help. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's this, it's this beautiful tragedy of them both just like, let's have this fake moment together just for this brief level of comfort because Lauren's alive. At least we can grasp onto this one thing in this, one of the even more, more tragic, you know, collateral pieces of damage in this movie is Lauren. But like, let's just hold on to each other and he's just being total pro. And, yeah. you're, just, and you're just watching. It's like 20, we're about 25 seconds into the minute. He's like, I'm not going anywhere. He's hugging her. And he's just, there's some, I don't know what to say. It's like, there's like a, it's like a deadening of his face here. Like Pacino's such a great. Well, that, in the morning, right? She says, I don't live with you. I live with the remains of dead people. Like, <laughs> isn't that what she says? Like, it's the yes. same thing. Yes. Um, but you can see it because in like a couple of minutes time, he will, she'll say, I'm okay, go. And he'll like fucking sprint down the stairs. <laughs> basically falls down the stairs to get up. <laughs> yeah, he, so he, he, I've heard it described as jauntily skipping almost <laughs> down those stairs because oh. the chase is back on. Because, you yeah. know, the thing, you know, the, the ultimate tragedy of Vincent in this moment, again, is this is a guy who knows this relationship's over, so he's, like, relegated to the professional. And from the emotional sphere, like, there's nothing there. It's just professional. I'm saying what needs to be said. I'm, I'm, I'm following the steps in a procedure that I know is going on in my head. Lauren's gone. Like, Lauren's basically tarnished. He's one, like, you know, I'm going to go to a hotel and sleep. You know, he he tells his team, I'm going to go to a hotel. I'm going to sleep for a month. Like, he's just, he's ready to just be out of the game for a, a short amount of time. That's tarnished. His relationship's tarnished. He gets to this moment. And and to him right now, Neil's gone too. So, mm. there's like a deadness. It's like, I, I failed my job. I failed my job. I failed my relationship. I failed my escape. I've like failed everything. Like this is for Vincent. This is his lowest point. Like I've literally failed everything. Every trick I've tried to try, every brazen tech technique that got me to this point, And I'm still, I'm still one step behind this guy. You know, we're talking about Vincent a lot and that's fine. You know, I mean, he, this is a crucial moment for him and in our understanding of him. But, I mean, particularly for Justine, this moment is really key. Like, I mean, you and I basically fangirled over Justine. Oh, my God. 100%. Um, 100%. I mean, Diane Venora is a huge babe and just, like, so incredible. Um, (laughs) Yes. Both true statements for everyone out there. A massive (laughs) babe at this time. Continues to be a massive babe throughout the rest of the night. He's still a babe. But uh, in this movie, peak babe, Diane Venora. Well, she... I mean, this I love because it's so powerful and we can kind of feel so much what she's going through because of the way, I mean, the way she cries and the way she kind of speaks this um, grief Mm. because it's grief for something that she's lost even though, you know, Lauren's still alive basically. Mm. But I feel like it's really interesting this focus on her and her sadness and her tears like in terms of, you know, I mean, man is kind of like dealing with the gangster, the you know, the crime genre noir a little bit. But there's, and he he doesn't go melodrama. But I mean, if you talk about women's tears, you have to talk about melodrama. And he doesn't like kind of, you know, hang on to this for overly long. But I think it's really interesting if you think about the history of how we watch like women cry and women mourn on screen that we do get a little bit of that here. But it's not. It's not taken to a level of pity. No, we don't. We never pity her. 
we never think like, I mean, you know, obviously what she's gone through is terrible, but it's never that moment where it's just like left on the screen too long and that the pity comes from the fact that we watched a tear roll down her cheek. Like that's, that's not it. It's just so much more raw than that. And, and also, you know, to, to sneak into another minute before that jaunty stare descent um, from, from Vincent, uh, when she sort of dusts herself off, she feels like you don't even doubt for a second that she's going to have this under control. Mm, yeah. Like, so I think that in this moment, it's like while she was, you know, ending her relationship with Vincent in the most dramatic um, way possible for their, uh, you know, for everything that's going through with them and uh, happening over the 131st and 32nd minutes, so a little bit before, about 15 minutes ago in the grand scheme of this movie. Um, when she's ending that, it's like she has to do all this over, you know, over the top. I have to demean myself with Ralph to like get a reaction out of you to get out of this thing. And so right now it's like the fact that she's again back close to him, him and Lauren is so far off. It's like also the tears are like how, you know, they're a little bit like how did I get so distracted with your bullshit in a way? And so that, I think that man almost deals with it in that way. Like she's like, oh, how did she get so far gone? Like and how did I – she's sad. She's upset at herself. Like how did I how did how did I let her go so far? So I think that that comes with a little bit more of like control awareness. It's not just like that that classical view of melodramatic, you know. Oh, I'm completely out of control and it's all over and I can't do anything. I think this movie, you know, if we talk about women crying in this movie, and there there are a couple of examples. We talk about that one of the prostitutes' mother who is completely lost. She's out of control. You know, she she's seeing a she's witnessing the the the, the you know the dumped body of her dead daughter, which is obviously the peak of that tragedy. You get this one with Justine, where she's sort of devastated with herself and you get some, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, just a few moments ago, you had Ashley Judd, like, you know, rolling sort of almost like pity filled tears for Chris, but she is still, she's not crying. She's not rolling tears like I'm out of control or I'm, you know, I'm not tough. It's just like that, a single tear to be like a few tears to go, oh, that's over, you know, like that, you know, that all of that love is gone and I'm I'm trying to survive for me and my son in this moment. So, yeah, it's a really, yeah, great point, great point about the tears happening through I this movie. thinking about, and tell me if I'm going on too much of a tangent, but I was thinking about Romeo and Juliet, which Diane Venora does the next year. Um, and poor Diane Venora and her, like, mourning mothers. <laughs> you <laughs> yes. know, in the end of Romeo and Juliet, I, was, I watched the end of it again to kind of think how does she deal with her dead daughter in that, in that movie. And she doesn't cry again. Like, it's, it's not melodrama again. And, I mean, we know this about the movie. It kind of is melodrama but only in regards to Romeo and Juliet, like the other characters. They, they don't really matter. Like, that's not what Baz Luhrmann is kind of interested in. <laughs> but when they find her body, it's just this weird kind of um, shot from the up from the top corner of her room and, the you know, the priest comes in and notes that she's dead and then Diane Venora is in the corner of the room and you don't really see her face. And then there's, like, one second later at that big kind of showdown where the policeman comes and says, shame on your houses. Yes. Um, that it's just a shot of her in the car and she looks, I mean, she looks like she's mourning, but she also looks like 
oh shit, what is the gravity of this that I that I am implicated in this kind of thing as well? Like she totally understands that it's both of you know that it it came from her this this death basically. Yes, uh, and I find that really interesting just because they were made so close together. Um, and I did read today as well that apparently Natalie Portman was the first choice for Juliet, but she was too young compared to Leo. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, did not I, know that. Just being BuzzFeed, making shit up. But, uh, <laughs> could have been. It could yeah, have been. Anyway, but, I, that, that might have been really interesting as well. A whole other world of heat obsessives oh could my have. Goodness, the crossover begins. The crossover <laughs> begins with heat obsessives and Baz Luhrmann. That that entanglement is something I don't think I'm prepared for. But um, but yeah, I think I don't think it's too far away from just knowing that you know Diane Venora strikes me to have the same or a similar skill set to someone like Gabriel Byrne, and I've heard them described with like effortless, effortlessly complex performers. And I know that Diane Venora has also, you know, done a bit of scenery chewing, but I think one of the things that she does so perfectly is just like um, being like a storm of emotions and deciding how much of that storm she's going to let out. And so I think it doesn't doesn't strike it doesn't surprise me that she'd be like that. And similarly, she pivots and does in '99. She does the Insider, um, and she plays Russell Crowe's wife, like Jeffrey Wigand's wife, in the in, in the Insider, and she's like, you know. She's got this facade of this, you know, Southern American mom who's like middle class and things like that. And she's trying to keep her shit together. And the challenge is that her husband is stubborn as all hell and wants to do this, even though their life is going to be completely just destroyed around them. Like, you know, ethically, it's a good thing. But that, watching her in that movie, she flexes some of those same muscles, this mother, this complicated mother relationship. And it's that sort of part of her career, a few performances in a row. And also, she has sweet bangs in the jackal. I think Maria Lewis, my dear friend Maria Lewis, would would, would admonish me if I didn't mention her bangs in the jackal and her <laughs> amazingness in the jackal. Even though her accent's quite terrible, um, her bangs in the jackal are very strong. Yeah. Um, anyway, I feel like we could go on about Diane Venora for such a long time, but um, and we'll talk about her again. I mean, I feel like that when we talk about. Um, you know, Neil later and Edie, that the, the parallel between the, the placement of the two women is kind of really interesting um, in this in this minute, in these two kind of scenes. Yeah, well, 30, we're 33 seconds into this minute. And this is such a weird shot. Like, I was just about to say that. That's, let's go, let's dive into this. Like, so strange for the, for the pace of this movie to have this as the establishing shot. Is it the first one of its kind in heat? I did rewatch the whole movie the other night, but it was very late at night and I might've like not paid full attention, but it's just so strange to kind of have this where so much of it is, um, you know, wide shots, crane shots kind of thing. Oh, well actually I don't know if there are any crane shots, but you know, kind of trying to get um, a big scope. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, just there's having one, this, yeah. There's one or two, like I would call them car POV shots. You know, they're really familiar in like action cinema, you know, the Mad Max movies, you know, George Miller kind of invented, you know, uh, new ways of shooting them um, in the original Mad Max. But the car POV shots, the other ones are Vincent hunting down um, 
Neil, like very briefly, you see in that kind of semi chase, um, you know, around the 87th, 88th minute, you know, f- you know, through traffic trying to catch Neil, you see a little bit of this, but it's really weird, you know, when you think of like the pace of a movie, you're trying to maintain, you know, you're trying to maintain a momentum, and sometimes it's like, you know, um, even Tony Martin, who's an Australian comedian and podcaster and filmmaker, talked about when he made his movie Bad Eggs, which I think, you know, hilarious comedy if you you ever get a chance to see it it's just such an underrated gem he talked about one of the things that saved him money when he made the movies like i just killed all the establishing shots you know they just like establishing shots are the first thing to go when you're trying to economize whether firstly monetarily and secondly if like you just don't want to you know you don't want to faff about you need to make up time and so in this like we're we're right at the business end i just want to add i interviewed this filmmaker matthew ross about his um movie Frank and Lola, which was filmed in um, Vegas. And I kind of asked, like, you know, I think I asked the same question, why are there no establishing shots? You know, we don't get the big Vegas. It's just this small, intimate Vegas. And he's like, look, we didn't have any money, so we just didn't do any of those shots. Um, like, same thing, right? Like, it costs a lot. It, co- it costs a lot. So right now we're in, like, uh, uh, LA, LA City nerds are going to know exactly what road we're on, but, like, we're here... And it's a good two, three, four seconds of like a, a highway on-ramp that sort of takes us to looking over the peak of LA, framing these two people's beautiful faces in the car, lit purposely by the incredible cinematographer Dante Spinotti. It's so good and it's so strange. I mean, even this reverse shot here where we see them in the car and see the city behind them, it's kind of has this weird like majestic feel that like is not almost anywhere else in the film. No, um, it's, it's like Edie is is like she's got this glow. Like Edie's got the glow on her and then all the other lights from all the other traffic are sort of illuminating Neil because she's getting that beautiful light on her face right there. And so, so yeah, you spend five seconds establishing that you're on a highway on-ramp and you're like, mm. what, why are we doing this in this moment? And, you know, as... It's um. I spoke to a guy named Brandon Hodges a few episodes ago, and he talked about he he had said he had paralleled this movie, and so had Hamish Ford, my other a, a phenomenal professor at University of Newcastle, um, and my my old university tutor and uh, honors honors uh, uh, honors supervisor, and he said they've both uh, compared Mann to Antonioni. They're like sometimes Michael Mann does things that like are really like metaphorically obvious, like they're doing like these big obvious things, but it's kind of in this, I don't know, it just like fits with the grandiose epic style of the story that he's trying to tell. So it doesn't like, it doesn't, it doesn't come off wrong. Similarly with Antonioni, it's like, it comes off great. It's like, we're literally on a road, we're on an on-ramp, which means that, you know, technically we're about to go on a highway and we're going to be home free. Like all those, all those allegories you can make in your head, all those, you know, metaphors are like, all right, we're home free. We're on the right track. We're getting out of here. And then, you know, in the modern age, what happens? You get a phone call and the phone call happens and we, oh, so Neil phones, uh, Neil phones Nate, John Voigt and the music does something at about, 12 seconds to go in this minute, it just starts to tingle the same way that it tingled when the train pulled into the station in like the first minute of this movie. It just tingles this little 
No, it's a little flurry. It's, it's just like it's coming, it's starting. And it's really interesting that the music does cut out for almost 10 seconds. There's no music in this. Like, yeah. you know, it's just them on the road and it's almost like it's, you know, they're, they are free and there's, you know, no more rush. They're on their way out kind of thing and then it kicks in again. And then as soon as Nate, you know, as you said, the trust, you know, money's in the trust. All, you're ready to rock and roll. You're ready to get out of here. Yep, you're out. It's done. The plane's going to wait. And then right there you are, so I got to tell you. And when we when we conclude, the music's up. Nate's there. I find it really interesting that um, the two of them are positioned in the edits in the same like half of the frame. That they're both on the right quadrant of the frame. Yes, both on the um, right sort of yeah right third of the frame. Both, yeah, is know. that just like so our eyes will go to them so we think of them as like, you know, um, I don't know, together so that we forget about Edie because, you know, by all means, like, probably to me, I've forgotten about Edie. <laughs> um, I just find that really interesting. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. And, of course, it didn't start that way. At, at the beginning, like, Nate was kind of more towards the centre. Anyway. No, but I, I think I think it just goes to reinforce, you know, there's no spoilers in this show because if, you've, if you're listening, and especially if you've gotten this far, you've seen this movie. And if you haven't, oh, you need to email me because I need to know that you exist. There's someone out there who's taking every single minute of one heat minute before they dare watch the film. And I hope the film stands up to some of the great analysis. But, like, uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's just to underpin what we know is going to happen. He's going to make this decision. And mm. and and it's also to put a big question mark for us because there's a moment here where Nate's like, "You are so I've got to tell you," but you're home free. Like he in the next in the forthcoming minute, not to tread on the toes of the forthcoming minute, but like he's going to tell him, "There's a guy here, but you're home free." So like, stay healthy, you know, stay alive, go and do the right thing, get out of here. And that leads into this incredible wrestle that De Niro has to have. And you're totally right. In this minute, you know, Edie just gets completely forgotten. She's out. She's outside. She's she's on the outer. She's not in Neil's inner circle. She's completely on the opposite side and sort of unaware. She's got this great, you know, there's a sort of, I don't know. I don't know how to describe her face, but it's, she, you know, this is this goes to Amy Brenneman's performance, but it's like, you know, very calm, very passive and positive. And then he picks up the phone and she looks like someone who's driving to the airport to get away. She doesn't look like a person who's freaking out that she's in a car with a sociopath and a mass murderer and a bank robber. She's kind of like calm. You know, this guy's ultimately a good man. Situation maybe happened. I believe that he's in love. We're going to go and live happily ever after sort of thing. You know, as deluded as all that may be. But yeah, I she- feel like I might have said this last time, but Edie is my least favorite character <laughs> in this film. I just think that she's kind of the um, the vaguest character, that she's not sketched particularly well. She kind of has this background, but, like, what is she, like an artist? Um, <laughs> yeah, a graphic designer and, yeah, and someone who works in a bookstore. Yeah, generic, like, female who will not actually – like inquire into the background of this man she's going to move to New Zealand with. Like 
I mean, whether or not that's what's intended with the character or whether she's just poorly drawn, I'm not sure. But that for that reason, she interests me the least. Um, and, you know, the fact that she's kind of really passive here just, um, I guess, speaks to that yeah. poorly drawn nature of her. But I think that she – and maybe this is the, a weak point in the movie, but she's necessary. What? A weak act- point? No, I'm just kidding. Go on. <laughs> she, for her to be like not kind of fully realized in that sense, I think is necessary for Neil to be able to use her to get out, yes. like to use her as the the like the character who's going to reform him, you know, make him change, make him give it all up. Like that, she's necessary. It's just unfortunate that there's there's not more there in in her, but. Maybe that's just, you know, the amount of time we get to spend with her kind of thing. Yeah. Or, or that Neil just basically gives no shits at all about who she really is and just wants her as this, like, perfect human who's going to be his escape route kind of thing. Yeah, he, I think, it, I think he, you, we're probably right on both counts because the way that I keep reading Neil in relation to Edie... It was always something that frustrated me and it was always something that was conflicted. But now because of that frustration and constant, I'm not sure. I think it's part of what I really like. But it's even in his inquisition of who she is, you know, you're a family person, you like loyalty. She's, you know, from, she's from the country. She's got a bit of like an LA, classic LA story. You know, she's from some country town where she's a graphic artist and and, um, she went and studied in New York City in Parsons and now she's over in LA. So she's like got this got this skill set that's really unique for for where she grew up and 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 yet she's alone and she's just you know kind of yearning for some kind of connection and then gets caught up with the wrong guy so it is very archetypal um to that like classic you know gangster movie dame from the country who's coming on a bus wanting fame and fortune in la and just like oh finds the complete wrong guy because she's not equipped for a guy like him um but but at the same time um I remember there's a great, and I think we might have mentioned it in the podcast before, but I think it bears worth repeating. It's like Amy Brennan was at the 20th anniversary um, Heat uh, Q&A with Michael Mann and Robert De Niro and Christopher Nolan um, in LA um, when they did a 4K re-release of the film. And, you know, she was being asked a question of by Chris Nolan and she said she didn't want to do the movie. The movie was too much violence. It was too masculine. It was too this and too that. And she just didn't want to do it. And, and she even tried to say to Michael Mann, like, oh, you know, trying to write the backstory for this character. Oh, she's fucked up. You know, she must have been abused. That would mean her. she's got more of like a, you know, a mental predisposition to guys who are violent, like in, in inherently without like overtly like pursuing that. She kind of has an attraction. And Michael Mann was such a romantic because he is quite melodramatic when you unpack it and, and romantic. He was like, no, she just loves him. Like that was his, like that was his answer to her. No, she loves him. Like, she's found someone that she's made a connection with. She loves him. Even though that betrayal's there, she's just awash with love. And whether we think that's good or not, I think it's funny. It's an interesting point to just go. For him in that, he was like, nope, she loves him. And I think in Neil, when Neil's lying to himself, he thinks that they're in love and this is just, you know, a honeymoon period and it's going to be amazing and you live happily ever after, but it just makes no sense. You know, this, when I was on the podcast last time, I went outside of my um, range and talked about the opening of the film because 
the first I feel like this minute there is a point to this the first, this minute in particular is kind of this really interesting parallel to the opening of the film because in the first kind of not the first scene but the first time you see Vincent he's making love to his wife like he's kind of presented as the lover he's very affectionate and sensitive and warm and I mean you know it doesn't really matter that immediately after that he like runs out the door I mean it does matter but like the way we we see him first is as a lover and the way we see Neil first is as a strategist like he doesn't care about women as far as we can tell he's just you know making a deal and making sure they get their get out of the crime scene ASAP you know and then after a while you know he meets Edie and he kind of becomes or he tries to and tries to act as a lover, but he never does. He never gets it right. And then we see Vincent and he, his, like, ability to love is kind of broken down. But in this minute that we're talking about, we see the love kind of return. And we also see um, Vincent's, like, um, strategist kind of overcome his, his lover act. But both of those things are, like, kind of soured somehow because we're at this point in the movie. Yes. And it puts them both with both, I mean, you know, in the, the bit before, it's a really tight close-up with um, Vincent and Justine. It's a really tight close-up. So even though they're not in love, or, you know, even though they're still in love, but even though they're not together, we have them intimately on the screen. Whereas this is like, they're, like, <laughs> you can see them. <laughs> you know, they're so far apart and they're so far away. And that even though they're, like, running away to spend the rest of their lives together, essentially, you, you know, you can't tell. In this, and I find that really interesting. This parallel, and, this kind of resurgence of, of the two of them as you know Vincent and Neil as opposites, but as ultimately tied together in all of their actions occurring in parallel. And and it's you know happening in parallel perfectly in the body language too. Like you said, with you know Neil uh, and Vincent and Justine, so Diane and Nora, they're they're embracing. And there's just something about pulling up the phone to your ear that's closest to your partner in the car. Like, it's not like you would put it on the opposite ear. Like, I just was thinking about driving with my wife and I'm like, if 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 it wasn't completely illegal to do, you put it on the other ear so you can, you, you've got your hand to interact and you're open. And But it's like this closed off thing. Like, I'm talking to Nate, you're shielded. This is like, it's a very active sort of shielding. And then, and then these guys, again, both Nate and Neil have... We've seen them in these little confessional moments where they can have this fraternal relationship and sort of confess, you know, strategy and talk strategy to one another before. And, you know, this is like a, a virtual, a cipher of that because he's got to drive along and do it in a car. But Neil would probably say he's protecting Edie. Like, he doesn't yes. want him implicated. But that's, like, that's not true. That's just, he's She's just done. About she's already that. implicated. Where, where did he go to escape all of the police things? He barged into her house. Yeah. And she's like, is this you? You know, when she was, you know, completely flummoxed is probably the best way to put it. Like after watching a 24-hour news cycle, seeing nothing but your partner's face writ large on the screen saying that he just committed all these murders. And she's like, was that you? And he goes, I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't sell medals. Like that's as, as callous as an expression yeah. can be. Like that's, he doesn't have to swear. That's just callousness. So, yeah. You know what? Uh, you know, it's kind of, I guess, I'm thinking back to what I said before and about how she was, Edie's just kind of like not a very well-drawn character and that she's just, a, I guess, a maybe a plot device to get Robert De Niro, um, you know, away. I mean, it's not quite that harsh 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Blake's looking at me like, what the hell are you saying about my movie? You're allowed. You're, look, this is what some people do. Like, people apologize for criticizing the movie when they're, on, when they're on the show. And I'm like, no, that's the point. Like, we, you know, I mean, we're, we're pressure testing every element of this movie. And some, some scenes I think she's essential. Like, that scene where he walks into her house and she is completely bewildered is my favorite scene with her in the film because I feel like if you were some poor, you know, if you were some girl who's come in from the country, gone to a really famous art school, come out here expecting to get like a great job, you meet a guy and you think it's a bit of a weird relationship, he's a salesman, yeah, that's a bit like, I don't know, that's a bit strange, it's a bit odd, but yeah, you know, we've seen to have this connection and then one day you're just like doing graphic design and the 24-hour news cycle comes up and the guy that's been in your bed... Mm is like on the news having killed people and you then watch that for like 18 hours, completely shocked. You probably don't even move. You probably don't even blink. And then he walks into your house like he owns it. Like her reaction, her torment in those scenes, the all the scenes around I'm like, that's where the character, that's that's the live and die of that character. Like the that for me. But here it's like once she's reserved that she's back under his wing and they've kind of, he's like, I can't go anywhere without you. That's where it starts to sort of echo the original times you see the character and you're like, oh, I don't know if she works. But like for me, right in the center, in those moments, she's like essential. She's yeah. she's perfect because it gives you the real like, this is not a nice guy. That's the art of this movie. Like when you're with him, you're on his side. But yeah. in that moment, you're like, no, this guy's not like, he's not a nice person. He's yeah. he's, a, he's a callous shitbag. Well, I mean, yeah, that's really that's really true, and you know, there are moments where I guess you do you don't know that he's like we don't kind of spend a lot of time thinking about how awful a person he is no. because we do see these other moments with him and Edie, and um, you know a bunch of other reasons, but and we we get to see him like as a real person and and stuff, um, but that's really true. What I find interesting, I just think about her kind of and you know maybe she is more meaningful but I think about her as this plot device to make him seem like not a complete asshole yes but then that he I don't know there's something about and you just mentioned it but there's something about him lying and saying he's a salesman that is just so fucking cheesy like (laughs) you know there are all of these noirs in the 40s and 50s where men make up this new identity and try and pretend they're not a murderer and they say they're a salesman and that's how they come up with it. Or yeah. they really are salesmen and they kind of get, you know, caught up in, in some illicit behaviour. But but this idea of, like, pretending you're a salesman and, like, that that is still some profession that holds <laughs> yeah. alibi in the 1990s is so hilarious um, that you would even think to try that <laughs> on someone. But, you know, she is naive and she is... I mean, she wants it to work, and so you can kind of think, well, that's why she's getting tricked. Whereas if you try that on Justine, she'd be like, Get the oh, fuck she'd out. eat you alive. <laughs> she'd fucking eat you alive. And it's like, and I think that that's the, you know, that's the arc of this whole movie, right? It's like Neil, Neil has these moments where he has this code and he wants to express it, but at the same time, he wants to have, he wants to have the artifice that he creates in his own little family. Like you think about. My one of my favorite moments that I've stumbled upon in this movie now, over and again, is the di- the dinner scene with Neil's crew. Now that that dinner is hours, literally hours after he's told Ashley Judd, Charlene Chahelis to clean up and go home. Like, it's it's probably the the afternoon of like Chris sleeping on his floor, 
you know. So, and he's there appraising, you know, happy couples, Treo and Anna, Chris and Charlene, Michael and Elaine, and the kids. And oh, don't ask him where he got it. He is the he's the architect of this fake picture. It's like Stalin taking photos with like the daughter of the people he's killed. Like <laughs> he's killed their parents, and he takes a beautiful photo with the daughter, and then makes that like a propaganda image. Like it is. It's just propaganda for his his ideology. And and he's like, no. Then then he then he wants Edie in his life, and he needs a simple, this you know, non challenging because like he's already got Charlene, and she's she's a handful. You know, he, he's got his hands full with Charlene and she's not even his wife, you know. And so Edie, this naive, like she wants it and he wants it and he can try and be sincere and she doesn't know any better. And like the stakes for her are until he like murders people are just like, oh, I've just seen this guy. Neil, he seems like a nice guy. He's very romantic, you know. Yeah. And she's like, do you have another family? Are you married? You know, because she also kind of thinks like, it might be so too good to be true. Works. That's the worst thing that that could be, you know, with a man, a mysterious man. You don't really know that he could have another family, not be a mass murderer. (laughs) Yeah. Look, he's not Wayne Grove, but, you know, he's absolutely, he's not a nice guy. Um, One of the films that I was thinking about when I thought about that um, salesman thing, was this film from 1949 called Tension. Um, which has a guy in it played by Richard Basehart who pretends, who, you know, he doesn't murder anyone but he kind of, he thinks about murdering someone and then they die and then he gets, like, he worries that he's going to get, you know, baited for the murder. So he becomes someone else and he makes up this new name and he says that he's a salesman. and weirdly starts dating Sid Charisse, um, which is super strange, before she um, became this amazing dancer in Stanley Donnan movies. But anyway, he has – was he originally meant to be called Tension? Because when I typed Tension into IMDb, it came up with Heat. And then I couldn't find that anywhere else. But, like, was it originally called Tension? Uh, no, I don't, I don't know. Like the only things that I know that it was ever called before was <laughs> LA Takedown. Um, and that's the only other thing, but I, 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 I don't know. I've never heard it called tension before. If you type tension into IMDb, it will come up as original name of heat anyway, which I find really weird, but that's kind of besides the point, but they're just weird kind of parallel that I wanted to bring up was that he, um, well, not him, but the other guy who gets murdered lives on this beautiful um, house on the beach, like glass walls looking out onto the ocean um, in Los Angeles. And it kind of looks like Neil's house. The, 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 French, the French title in okay. Canada was Tension. Right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Anyway, that's a bit, you know, bit of a dead end, <laughs> I guess, to go down that one. But um, anyway... The beach houses look similar, and that kind of made me feel really happy. <laughs> no, look, and and I was just going to say, it's funny that like, um, you know, when I was just googling tension, it's like a meek pharmacist creates an alternate identity. Yeah, and that is a salesman, like this, you know, the, the complete opposite of a yeah. meek pharmacist must be a swarthy, you know, road weary salesman, something yeah. like that. 
it's so funny. He, the meek pharmacist, has glasses, and the um, the salesman has contact lenses. Oh, bless! It's so good. Oh, um, that sounds great. I mean, normally that's the kind of before Superman, like that was the kind of disguise that like women would kind of you know enact, right? Like Marilyn Monroe in How to Marry a Millionaire yes. for one. Um, but the fact that it's a, a man kind of acting um, through these roles is these uh, superficial roles is interesting. Oh, it's good. It's really good. And that also, you know, it's funny about Neil. Like a lot of things that Neil is is a throwback. Um, and I think it's just a funny expression of his like being out of touch. Because like if you think about the other women in this movie, you know, even Elaine, even Lillian, you know, um, who's uh, Don Breeden's partner. Like none of those women believe that he's a salesman. Like right. Edie does. Cause she wants to. That's the whole point. It's like yeah, that's the ethos, like that's that positive like, light that Michael Mann has. It's like, yep, want you to, want you. To, oh. maybe that's, I mean, maybe that's why I don't buy it. Like, I just feel like maybe she hasn't watched enough. Maybe I've watched too many movies. Because you would never. You know, I, I spoke of like tough and intelligent women. You are a tough and intelligent woman. Why would you, for a second, believe that a guy's like, "Hey, I'm a salesman"? You'd be like, "Yeah, all right." I've seen that in yeah. 25 movies, including Tension from 1949, which is Cerise. <laughs> like, I guess what I don't I I buy like, into your bullshit. What I would like to see, and maybe it would only need a few more minutes of exposition or something, but like why Edie just doesn't think about it. Like what, I mean, you know, and why well, I guess you answered the question where Michael Mann says, well, he just loves her, but I'd just love to know why she doesn't kind of like probe that little bit further. Um, but but anyway. I think yeah I think the only explanation that I have and it's just my impression of the movie is that it, when you think about it there are plenty of people who've had a first night like a one night stand with someone and they're like sort of interested and you go oh well like this could turn into something and literally they have like two times together and so right now it's easy to believe anything it's like oh yeah well, like we've slept together a couple of times he seems really nice. He's saying a lot of romantic shit, but I'll see how it goes. The third time he comes to her house is after he's just robbed the biggest bank in LA and shot the whole town up. So, like, how many times have you been in a relationship and be like the first two dates and maybe they were, like, sexual, maybe it was nice or whatever, and you're like, oh, this is really romantic. Oh, I think I'm getting into this person. And then, oh, my God, they basically are holding me hostage. Like, I don't think... That's why right now, is for me, is a more challenging scene than the others because before, she's just like, hey... I'm interested, you know, have a couple dates, very positive, like positive outlook. Doesn't need to probe because like, eh, yeah, okay, we'll sleep together. It's nice, whatever. I'll go back to like graphic designing. Um, but yeah, like right now, this is the bit where I'm like, I don't know how in this moment she hasn't already gone there, gotten out of there. But I wonder if it's survival too. It's like this guy killed people. You know, I don't know. I mean, not to say it's the dream of every woman, but like <laughs> a lot of women want to change their men, you know. They're like, you're kind of good. You'd be better if you were this way. So <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that maybe she's just clinging on to that, that hope. Yes. But it's never going to happen. No, no. Never, ever going to happen. It's too huge of an ask. But she doesn't know the extent to which she needs to change him. She just thinks like, oh, yeah, you know, if he could calm down a bit, I think. <laughs> oh, it's, it's such a like... Oh, yeah, look, I mean, he's been bad here, but when we get to New Zealand, 
you know, there's something about that Auckland air that's just going to really flip it. Like, she probably doesn't even know where they're going to fly into. She doesn't even know where they're going. And with that, look, I just have to thank my amazing guest, her second and possibly last time ever on One Heat Minute um, uh, appearance, Eloise Ross, um, at, if you guys are following along on Twitter, at Eloise Low Ross um, and at the Colt Cat Pod. You can hear her and the lovely Anders and Andy um, on their uh, sort of uh, my weekly fortnightly, especially ramping up into festival season, you guys get yeah, real busy. We're busy. We've we've gone. We've like taken um, our foot off the pedal, and we're going monthly now for like the majority of the year, unless there's a special occasion. Special occasions away. So yeah, monthly is good. They are absolutely loaded with reviews and insights, and uh, these guys, especially Ello and uh, Andy, at the moment are super busy with some other side projects that allow them to see a stack of movies ahead and um, always have some good stuff to say about them. Thank you, thank you so much for being a part of the show again. I really loved it. I really loved getting into, you know, getting specifically into a couple of minutes and thinking a lot about, I mean, it's such a great movie. It really is. Like if you want to pick one to, to go minute by minute, then this is, this is one for it. I, I, there are so many minute podcasts and there are so many other movies um, that people claim stand up to this level of scrutiny. Um, and I just want to say that like unequivocally, uh, as with this minute, as with every minute, um, I just marvel at this movie. I just marvel <laughs> at it. I marvel at the echoes. I, I marvel at its contrasts. I marvel at, you know, how sometimes, you know, the, especially with these two lead characters having conflict, you know, having, um, contrasting and then, you know, these perfectly mirrored experiences across scenes and across minutes. It's so great. But it's a, a lo- it's made much more fun by awesome people like you coming on the show. So thank you so much for being a part of it again. Thanks, Blake. And I wish you all the best for getting Michael Mann for minute 170. <laughs> yes. It, it, if, he can, if he can be on the show, it will be uh, one minute. It will either be minute 164 or 65 because they're the last pre-credits minute of the movie. Thank you, Ello, for that well wish into the universe. Um, and, folks, I'm just going to keep throwing it out there. Um, keep throwing it out there into the universe and uh, and and hopefully the amazing cachet of guests that have been on this show and all of uh, your support and some way somehow we get Mr. Man uh, get access to him behind the curtain um, but Mr. Yeah. Man just like Neil McCauley he's got a Nate he's got people that I have to go through people to get to him it's not just you can't just get to Neil McCauley straight away so similarly you've got to jump through the hoops and I'm continuing to jump you know I'm out there dedicated you know three marriages you think that guy like fucking staying home like that's me right now trying to get michael man on this show so look Ello, thank you so much for being a part of the show again guys thank you for listening um i've been blake howard at blake is batman on twitter oneheatminute.com for everything mail at one heat minute if you want to mail into the show or just hit me or eloise up on twitter um, um if you've got any questions about the episode or anything else um and thank you to garth franklin for our web design thank you to paul davies for our theme and we'll catch you on another episode One heat minute just around the corner, and Ello, you are, so I gotta tell you.